Well, I, um, I actually was teetering between preaching on the gospel today and on 2 Timothy. Two things swayed me. One, I think the gospel is really, really clear, and you don't have to add much to it, right? It's helpful for us to reflect on that as we think about our own lives, religious lives, and our lives of righteousness before the Lord and of humility before the Lord as well. So I decided on 2 Timothy be, uh, for the, the other reason is because it might be one of my favorite letters in the New Testament. Really for one reason. It's just unvarnished. It's very unvarnished. It deals in reality and it deals in particularity. The Apostle Paul actually talks about the real world relational dynamics that are going on in the church and the challenges that he's facing of following Jesus. You get plenty of names, you get places, you get circumstances. And this means a lot to me and should mean a lot to us. Paul is really personal even in this and very transparent about his own challenges, about his own, you know, the journey of being faithful over the long haul and being hopeful while he's in very, very difficult circumstances. He might be in this prison all winter is what we find out. And so he's even worried about being without a coat. In verse 6, um, where we begin today, Paul reaches back into Israel's worship tradition, into their history, to find a metaphor for what he's facing. He talks about a drink offering being poured out on the altar, poured out completely. And I'm going to come back to that because I think it's really important, um, not only in really grasping thinking about the trajectory of his life, but also grasping where we live and locate our stories in the gospel, uh, the redemptive narrative and story that we are a part of, that God is enacting in and through us. So I'm going to come back to that. But Paul also, we, we know he sees himself as like a wrestler who is fighting, grappling to the end, or he's like a runner who is finally finishing the marathon. So he's rich with metaphors in this. And the truth is he's held on through thick and thin to the promise of Christ's appearing, talking about longing for it and looking for it. And he wants the same for Timothy. He wants the same for Timothy, who he challenged in verse 5 to be sober-minded. In other words, be realistic. He calls him to endure suffering and to keep reaching out. He wants him to stay in the struggle of ministry. To stay in the struggle of ministry. What we often forget, I think, and this is, this is important, what we often forget in this era of Christianity that we live in, so far away seemingly, this era of the faith um, that they're living in is deeply embattled. On one level you could say it's just in trouble, it's vulnerable. It's very um, small. It's a small movement. It's hard for us to really imagine that and think about that and really understand when we read how, how vulnerable and without power or influence Christianity really is at this time. Anyone willing to follow the way is doing something quite extreme. There's a lot of loss, particularly if you're a Jew. And I think it's just good for us to keep this in mind when we're engaging, when we're reading the New Testament, when we're trying to live our faith out in this modern era. Because one of the greatest problems, I think, of the church in our day is the way we now so easily abstract Christianity from its very human and its very historical reality. As much as it depends on the power of the Spirit, it is the power of the Spirit at work in people in circumstances, 
and in the words inspired through them and the circumstances they endured. We can treat Scripture very often like just a set of teachings, can't we? A set of teachings, and we kind of pluck it up out of its story. And what happens in the process, we end up making it selective, you know, squishy, I even say, like idealistic and even sentimental. And what do we do? We lose the real humanity, the real, the, I think, the edges of the story, the context that is the, the context for the inbreaking of the kingdom. We need the details. We need the story itself and the people who were living it. So what happens when we do abstract it? When we lose a sense of what I think comes through so clearly in a letter like Timothy, and it's in particular this fourth chapter. Let me just give you an example of what I think happens. We might say something like, well, Christianity is just all about love. Well, what do we mean by that? We might invoke Paul himself, who, who said, of faith, hope, and love, love is the greatest. And that is good news, isn't it? It's great news. But he also said a whole lot of other things, didn't he? And in fact, the way he lived out love is vitally important. How does Paul love? How, what does love look like when Jesus loves? In other words, what does the whole story tell us that love looks like and does in the midst of difficulty? What does it look like in the midst of opposition, in the face of sin, as it puts forward this moral vision for how we're meant to live our lives? When we say love in our day, do we mean the same thing that they did? We've got to pay attention to how it was lived and understood. Here's another example of what happens when we abstract from the story and the details. We might just reduce Christianity to a system of rules and rewards. Just rules and rewards, an abstraction that go in the direction of maybe our existing preferences or maybe that fit our personality, what we're good at, like the guy in the gospel today, the Pharisee, right? Or maybe in the direction of our politics. And I call this making Christianity an accessory. We add it to our lives and we find the, the pieces that fit already. But what if, I want, we want to reckon with this question all the time, what if the moral vision of the New Testament, of all of Scripture, it actually puts us squarely in the middle of the binaries? Let's say the two-party system. Or maybe it even puts us right in the middle of ourselves a little conflicted, challenged, uncomfortable. I'm going to tell you, I believe it fundamentally, and I've been walking with Jesus now about 25 years. I think it makes us uncomfortable, all of us. And I think it should. So what I'm talking about, this way of abstracting and sort of making it comfortable and, and pulling it out of the story and out of the details and getting a Paul that we like or a Jesus that we like, this isn't exactly new. This is exactly what Paul is facing even from prison. This is what the gospel is up against that he's trying to advance and he's trying to steal Timothy's resolve for, to help him hold on. Because narrowing the moral vision of the gospel to just preferable ethics of any given time, that's an ancient move. That's old school. It was already happening in the first century. So you had on one end, let's just talk about what they were facing, what was going on there. On one end, you had groups who were just really, really focused on the external rules. 
the regulations. We're going to add all kinds of things to it that you have to do to be in, and that if you don't do, you're out. You ever experienced a Christianity like that? Well, it started way back when, with the Judaizers, as they were called. Then on the other end of the spectrum, maybe if it's a spectrum, you had Christians who were trending in what we know as the Gnostic direction. It was where it was going, where they were like, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do externally at all. Your body doesn't matter at all because this is a spiritual thing. You can kind of do whatever you want with your body or treat it badly because it's a bad and evil thing. And so, you know, Jesus was just a spirit or maybe an idea. I mean, this stuff was already going on back then. And the spirit is what really matters. And in both cases of what I'm talking about here, both the very legalistic kind of end of things or the hyper-spiritualized kind of things, the gospel was being edited. It was being obscured. And it's clear, especially in Paul's writings, that this is what's going on. So even from prison, this is what Paul is laboring to deal with and to try to help Timothy deal with. Chapter 1, and I'm just going to walk really quickly to catch this up to chapter 4. Chapter 1 of his second le- this second letter, he begins to tell the story of how things are coming apart and holding together. And that's life, isn't it? It's not all perfect all the time, but I love that he tells the story of how he, he's, he can bless and have hope, and at the same time, all of this stuff is going wrong. And I think we can relate to that. That is real life. Some of his crew have abandoned him. When things got really hard for him in his captivity, and they might imagine, well, the, the head's been cut off, and we're in trouble, and we can't be sustained. Paul, man, this is all going south, so they bail on him. He says that Phygelus and Hermogenes and almost everyone in Asia beyond Ephesus have bailed on him, except for one, Onesiphorus. He stuck around. And it's a good thing, too, because a prisoner in those days relied on that, you know, they couldn't go to the commissary or the cafeteria. They relied on friends and family and maybe even the kindness of strangers to make sure they could eat and were taken care of. And so this is why his friends really matter that they're there. It isn't just because he's got a plan and a mission and he's working the control room, you know. He is in trouble and he needs help. Chapter 2, more ups and downs. Hymenaeus and Philetus, Philetus, one of those, have swerved from the truth. Sometimes they just get hard to say. Remember in all which, what your vows need to do. They've swerved from the truth, telling everyone that the resurrection that Jesus promised has already happened. What's going on right here? Well, they're tapping into their Greek philosophy. The tail starts wagging the dog. And they reject the idea of any bodily resurrection because they're, you know that's problematic. And so they basically spiritualized it. Well, the resurrection is an enlightened state then, and it's already happened, and some of us have it, and some of us don't. You hear little echoes in the gospel we read today, right? Some of us have it, some of us don't, and Paul's like, that can't be. So, it was probably just like a lot of what we see in our own day, a kind of sensuality in search of a theology to backfill, to justify it. Oh, well, the resurrection must have happened because this is how we want to live. So what does Paul tell Timothy? Continue in what you have believed, what you've learned. Even though people will want teachers to suit their own passions and wander off into myths. It's just the way it works and the way it happens. Vigilance is called for. And as hard as this has made things for him, 
Paul is not surprised by this. Nor should Timothy be, nor should we. He's a realist about it. This is what Jesus told them the church would be like. It's going to be a struggle internally, 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 and externally in the world. It's going to be a challenge. And for the, in their case, Nero is emperor already. And what does that mean? This is a time when Christians were being lit on fire and used as torches. They're thrown to wild animals in the Colosseum. This is what the Roman historian Tacitus called exquisite tortures. They loved to see it. And Tacitus, in particular, in his writing, he was offended by the idea that anyone would say that someone could be resurrected from the dead after a Roman execution. Because when Rome executes you, you're dead dead. He called it an abomination, preposterous, preposterous, shameful, that you would say that someone could rise from the dead. So then here's Paul in our reading today. We catch up chapter 4. Demas represents another heartbreak for Paul. It's ridiculous. It would be ridiculous, knowing what we know of Paul, reading his whole story, for us to think, oh, well, we lost another foot soldier. He's lost another son. Demas, he says, has fallen in love with the present world. He's run off. This is a guy who was with him when he was writing to the Colossians, he mentions, and he's writing to the letter of Philemon. He's been with him through a lot of hard things, and now he's gone. But I want you to listen to what Paul tells Timothy, and this is really important in the face of this. this he tells that this is in chapter 2, but this is how he wants to set him up to understand situations that, like this that he's facing. He says, patiently endure evil. Correct your opponents with gentleness. Why? Because God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Paul has hope for his enemies. He has hope for his opponents. He's sitting in prison. And he has hope for them. This is the whole reason he's doing it. Remember when Jesus told them to love their enemies? And when he prayed for his own enemies from the cross when they mocked and murdered him? Paul remembers it. And here's, this is so important for Paul in his suffering. It's no excuse for him to change the way it is, to abstract the gospel. But then there's this one guy mentioned in our reading today. There's always, maybe, there has been for me in a lot of seasons of my life, the one guy, the one gal, the one, you know, just the hard thing. Sometimes harder than other things, but for him, it is this coppersmith named Alexander. A real thorn in his flesh, even dangerous. He's so persistent that Paul worries that he might even be a threat to Timothy, should their paths cross. Paul is probably sitting in prison in part due to Alexander's work against him. And now Paul is facing another hearing. He's a Roman citizen. He's probably going to face the sword. He's not going to become a torch. But if he's declared guilty, he will die by the sword. And so he just describes this to Timothy, talks about Alexander the coppersmith. And let me just read to you how he responds and how he turns this perspective. He says, at my first defense, and he's dealing with the reality 
At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. There's meaning in this suffering. And all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. That's how he sees Alexander. And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In short, he understands that his deliverance is certain one way or another. His hope is alive, even if he does face the sword. Even if he's nearing the end. Listen, even if the Alexanders of the world seem to be winning. Even if he's like a drink offering being poured out on the altar. And this is, as I said, I wanted to come back to this. and Basically, end on this. Um, it's a powerful metaphor that he's pulling on here. There are only a few places in the Old Testament where the drink offering is mentioned. Numbers 15 is one of them, and you can read about it there. But what we find out is this drink offering was only offered in the promised land or during a time of rest. When they've overcome, in Leviticus 23, it's described as a sabbatical offering. After the fighting is over and they're dwelling in the land, that's when the wine was an acceptable offering. It was a unique thing. But I want you to think about this for a minute. Why? Like, what, what, why wine? Why make it wine the, the symbol of this thing? Because wine takes time, doesn't it? The best wine takes time. It's better later. You might even say it's, in nerdy theological terms, it's an eschatological drink. It's about an end. It moves us somewhere. It's looking forward. When victory and rest finally come after much waiting and much working, they can pour out the symbol on the altar of God. They labored and they struggled and they hoped. Now they pour it out. Paul labors and he struggles and he hopes and now he can pour it out. But let me tell you, the, this metaphor gets even more interesting. If we're just willing to just, just stick with me and dive a little deeper into it. Here's the thing. All the other offerings, you know, the bread and the meat, they generally kept back a portion to be consumed. It was for the priest to, be, to, to participate in that way. They would eat and drink, uh, or they would eat, but not the drink. Not yet. Not the drink offering. Pour it all out. And this was a sign that the final victory and the final rest was still to come. Nothing for them to drink. Paul has this in mind. I'm being poured out as a drink offering. We're still waiting. We're watching. But what we also know is this. Hebrews 4 makes it clear that in Jesus, a victory and a rest already has come. Jesus has become the great high priest. He provided the final and the sufficient sacrifice of his body and his blood. And now a new Sabbath is here that we can already experience. A new rest, a new victory. Though it awaits something else. It's the one that Israel was waiting for. Now we live in the in-between time. But what does he already do? He invites them and us not only to eat, but to drink. We're already celebrating. We're already in a kind of rest looking forward to its fullness. We can drink of the celebratory wine of victory and rest. 
By adding the wine to this new Passover meal that Jesus instituted with his disciples, he invited God's people into a kind of fellowship they never, they were waiting for, anticipating. And we already have this. We have it, and yet even the wine we drink is pointing us forward. Do you understand? It's still an eschatological drink. It's still better later. Because Jesus told his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom. With you. So we drink this wine. And I, I want I to just encourage you to let it put you in the mind even of the life that Paul lived and what he's saying, what he invokes by, talk, by talking about this drink offering being poured out. When we receive this wine, we are, we're right in the middle, so to speak. We're in the middle of the victory of Christ on the cross whose own blood becomes this outpouring of wine for us, this offering for us. And we're awaiting when we will drink it anew with him. We're living between these times and in the middle what? Suffering and struggle. But it provides us peace and strength. It allows Paul and us to pour out our own lives on the altar of our own time and our own space while we're looking forward to another feast. When we consecrate the bread and wine, we say together, Christ has and Christ will. He has died, he has risen, and he will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption in the sacrifice of this praise and thanksgiving, we say. And then the next breath, what do we say? Bring us with all your saints into the fullness where we shall see our Lord face to face. In other words, where we will drink it anew with him as he promised. I don't know where you are and what you're going through, and maybe it's not much. That will probably change at some point. But I want you to know this, that we're waiting for the fullness. And we talk about the level of anxiety that we're facing. Collective, we pray about it every Sunday, the collective just angst that we feel and that is, is finding new ground and new depth even in our teenagers, in our young people, in the world that we've made. But we've got to be the people like Paul, even sitting in the middle of, of the harshness, the harsh reality, the brutality, and even the cold where he just needs a jacket. He needs, he needs some comfort and he needs his friends. We're living in this space, and for us, the call is to know that we're drinking and we're receiving the rest and the strength that Jesus is already giving us, but it's not all there is, not yet. We're the people in between. Paul tells us that story. It gets hard. It gets extremely difficult in all kinds of ways. And we don't live at the missional tip of the spear like Paul but we do live in the same world where our faithfulness is embattled from within and from without. I feel it, and I know you do too. So we're going to come to this table again. It's not a routine. It's not a religion. It's our life and our strength. It's our reminder that we taste and it does its work in us. It's the spiritual and communal strength for living faithful lives together as we wait and we work and we pray together. And we can hope for the very thing that Paul prayed for Timothy, that the Lord would be with you or with your spirit and also grace.
that grace would be with you. I need it. Listen, you need it. We need it together. This is why we're here. The Lord is good. The Lord is kind. And he's given us what we need, as Peter said, everything we need for life and godliness. And I pray as you come to receive today that you know it's there. You have it. We have it together. And do you believe that? Lord, we need your spirit. Holy Spirit, we have you. Lord, we need your grace. And we know that even in the midst of our sin and our weakness and our temptation to walk away, your grace abounds all the more. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.